This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In the late 19th century, in late 19th century America, farmers in the South and Midwest suffered with droughts and low prices, while the new urban and industrial centres were thriving. The farmers were isolated politically and physically. One described his farm as 250 miles to the nearest post office, 100 miles to wood, 20 miles to water, 6 inches to hell. They formed the Populist or People's Party in the 1880s to fight their cause, put up candidates for president, won several states and influenced policies for some time. In the South, though, their political rivals were so worried by their appeal to black farmers that they rushed to suppress the black vote and set black and white and poor white farmers against each other, reinforcing segregation. With me to discuss the American populists are Lawrence Goldman, Professor of History at the Institute of Historical Research, University of London, Mara Keir, lecturer in U.S. history at the University of Oxford, and Christopher Phelps, Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Nottingham. Lawrence Goldman, how had the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, affected the American farmers? Well, that war was fought largely by farm boys on both sides, both the North and the South put into the field armies made up uh, of farm boys from farms and small settlements. But the war itself changed America. It began, or at least it stimulated, uh, a process of industrialization and urbanization, which largely affected uh, the North uh, with great cities, offering, as it happens, opportunities to American farmers in the North, close to those cities. Um, But in the South, the effects of the war were rather different. The great plantations Uh, were broken up. Uh, Slavery, of course, was ended. Uh, Slaves were emancipated. And the southern agricultural structure changed, and not necessarily for the better. What emerged out of the Civil War in the South uh, for farmers were systems known as sharecropping, which involved both the freed people, blacks who'd been emancipated, um, and also many poor white farmers as well. Uh, The plantations were divided into small lots, 40 acres. Uh, Black and white families worked uh, these lots, and at the end of the uh, season, uh, the crop was shared when it was sold, often 70 to the um, uh, family, 30 to the landholder. This was not a very uh, progressive form of land tenure. Uh, It didn't enrich anyone. Uh, There were lots of poor farmers in the South from the 1870s onwards uh, who found themselves struggling. There were many other conditions that were against them, but this was a period when, particularly in the South, conditions were tough. And energy in all sense of the word was sucked into the North as the Industrial Revolution really took off and hit in America and very soon America was going to become the leading industrial relation nearly industrial nation in the world where in the south and the west the farms you say broken up and isolation as was mentioned in the introduction of an extreme kind it was also known as the gilded age why was that well actually the term comes from a novel an 1873 novel that mark twain wrote uh, with a co-author uh, charles dudley warner uh, the gilded age a story of today and it's really a satire on the change that has hit america if in the 1850s and the 1860s America was really considering the great moral question of slavery 
history uh, and the great issues of um, national identity. Are we to be a free nation or a slave nation? Uh, when the war was over, um, quite rapidly, the focus changed to enrichment, to industrialization, urbanization, and getting rich quick. And Twain satirized this in this novel, The Gilded Age. Uh, it's partly set in Tennessee, where. What did he mean by gilded? Well, uh, if, when you gild uh, a piece of metal, you put a very superficial um, uh, veneer, if you like, of of gold over base metal. And what what, what was the what was the superficial? What was the base metal? You the base about? metal is what America really is. When you strip away the gold, when you strip away the gilding, what you've got is corruption, which the novel is all about. Uh, you've got inequality, you've got poverty, you've got unfairness, uh, and you've got prejudice of many types as well. Uh, and what Twain is doing is trying to get at, if you like, the base metal underneath what's in, uh, at least uh, um, on the surface is glittering. Was there a consensus of recognition for this book? Um, yes, quite rapidly. Uh, although it's not one of uh, Twain's uh, finest pieces, mm. uh, quite rapidly it was seen for what it was, uh, a story of, of today. Uh, it was seen really as um, a piece of art getting to the heart of the way America was going at that time. Thank you very much. Mara Kier, what was life like for farmers in the Midwest and the South? So they were very isolated. Um, they were the, the people who voted populist, um, as opposed to the people who were voting Democrat or Republican, were the most isolated of farmers. They were not necessarily poorer than other farmers closer into town, but they were the furthest away, as the quote you started with really demonstrates. Geography. I'm talking about geography. Yeah. But that also had an impact culturally as well. So it meant that they lived in the least diverse communities. They they lived in communities with the fewest denominations. So they had a lot of churches, but they didn't have the whole sort of range from liturgical to evangelical and pietistic. They mostly had what we might call sort of shouting religions. Um, and they were the farthest from train stations, from county seats. Work's been done that the counties of populace had about 50% less uh, population than the counties with Democrats. And so they needed sociability. Um, and they were not really part of the intellectual mainstream. And so this was both a strength and a weakness. They were lonely and isolated. But on the other hand, they didn't imbibe as regularly in the propaganda or the beliefs about how things should be. And in one way, they were living the great dream of America set out by Thomas Jefferson, that this should be an agrarian society where you grew your own food, you lived your own life, you were the yeoman farmer. Wordsworth mentioned that too. Uh, and that was an ideal they were proud of. They were they kept they were the real Americans. Yes, and indeed, you know, that's one of the things that Brian's William Jennings Bryan said in his famous Cross of Gold speech was that if you burned all the cities but kept the farms alive, the cities would spring up again overnight. But if you burned all the farms, tumbleweed would go through the, the streets of the cities. Let's get back to the condition of the farmers. They're isolated. Uh, uh, less, the nearer a big city you are, the, the less likely you are to be poor. But they, they were bypassed. They were poor. And in that sense, they were, they were poor of influence. And big business was against them in all sorts of ways. But let's go back to something you said about religion. What, what impact did their religious life have on their beliefs? 
So one of the things is that they were classic um, Protestant sola scriptura. Um, They believed in the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible was correct, and that, you know, as believing Christians, they could read the Bible and that they could interpret it on their own. They did not need the mediation of an expert to explain what was happening in the Bible. This is a Presbyterian shrine of Protestantism, isn't it? That Absolutely. everybody's equal in front of the Bible. Absolutely. And this carries over into the belief of being able to look at the world around them and the conditions around them and to be able to interpret it themselves. It gave them self-confidence to be able to come up with their own platform. And so they're there, they're in the communities. Are we talking about At this stage, we're talking about all-white farmers, aren't we? No, because the um, black farmers are also from a similar pietistic um, culture. And so you have similar beliefs, similar set beliefs. You're talking about great similarities or...? I mean, there's some discussion about how similar it was and whether the the camp meetings of of black farmers would be more... uh, Effervescent, one might say, um, but there are a great deal of similarities in terms let's of that Let's get the proportions, enthusiasm. though. I talk, oh, sorry, I interrupted okay. you. I didn't mean to. And let's take a proportion. We're mainly talking about white farmers at the beginning, and then the, there, there are black farmers because of the end of slavery and the distribution of land and so on, but they're not in a majority in this movement. No, the black farmers were never in a majority in the movement. Are they anywhere near a majority? No, and it re- but it really depends on a county-by-county county basis what, um, what kind of alliances were made, how strong the Republican Party was in some of these counties. Thank you. Christopher Phelps, we've got this new party springing up. It goes through various names and ends up being called the Populists. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the priorities of the main parties, the Republicans, Democrats, and Democrats at this point? What was this new party up against? So the party system that had evolved since the Civil War in the United States was very much, even though three or four decades on, shaped by the memory of the Civil War. Uh, And party loyalties were sectional. So in the North, the Republican Party was hegemonic uh, or dominant. And in the South, the Democratic Party. And politicians of both parties in both regions would wave the bloody shirt. They would, uh, you know, a a Democrat running in a tight race in the South would tar their Republican opponent with the memory of the Civil War, of the boys of the gray who had given their lives and of the danger of a return to Republican rule and what it had meant for crushing the South, uh, and likewise in the North. Uh, the two parties were also shaped by distinct r- ethno-religious loyalties. In the South, the Democratic Party was very much a white man's party and announced itself as such. In the North, there was a bit of a division between uh, the urban centers, especially New York, uh, where Democrats did have viability electorally, uh, and they played to immigrant populations, especially Catholics, uh, but also German Lutherans and so forth, whereas the Republicans tended to play to the more evangelical Protestant denominations. And the big difference there, the reason that played out politically and meant something, was the issue of alcohol. And the, the evangelicals tended to be prohibitionists, and that was coming on the horizon. It would happen in the 20s. Uh, and the people who voted Democratic like to have their stein of beer with their sausage. 
And we're talking about two entrenched parties here. Would it, was it ever likely that a third party could, could get going? Well, there was an opening because uh, the both parties weren't paying attention to the desperation that many agrarian people were feeling. So how did this third party, which in one way did remarkably well, especially in the... How did it get organized? So the first thing that happened with the farmers' movement was that... Uh, and we've had people around the table speaking very eloquently to their isolation. And what was remarkable in the 1880s is that farmers surmounted that isolation by coming together in community. And they first did so through the farmers' alliances. Uh, the alliances were in some ways, very much in the old American tradition because initially they attempted self-help. They tried to solve their conditions by their own activity, pooling their resources in cooperative stores, in cooperative exchanges, so that, for instance, cotton farmers bringing their cotton to market, if they sold together, might be able to get cheaper freight rates and might be able to get better prices in the, in the market. Uh, and same with buying guano from South America. They knew by then that fertilizing your land could help. Uh, and so they were trying to pool resources. But because they're poor dirt farmers, these efforts were very undercapitalized, these farmer cooperatives. Uh, and the alliances started to realize that there's going to have to be social and political reforms. There's going so how to... did they move to the political? That's it. They moved to the political because they realized they must have measures that are going to enable them to get access to credit. So uh, get in positions of power? Yes. Set up a party where people could vote for them? Well, first they lobbied the main parties because mm. obviously they were still loyal Democrats and loyal Republicans, mm. and they tried to get their own elected officials to adopt measures that will help them, including the sub-treasury plan, which was a very big um, plank, and nationalization of the railways and so forth, getting nowhere with the major parties. Uh, and in getting nowhere, they decided to launch a people's party of their own. And they had some had quite a bit of success to get going. They got, can you tell us? The People's Party, uh, which has a sort of first uh, run in Kansas in 1890 and then gets going nationally in 1892, had an extraordinary success for an independent third party in American politics. Um, for example, in the 1892 election in Kansas, they took all five House seats, uh, uh, five of the seven House seats, pardon me. They took the Senate, they took the governorship, and they nearly controlled the lower house of the legislature. Um, and in in numerous other places, Georgia, Texas, where the populists were strong, they sent people to Congress. Uh, there was a senator from North Carolina who was a populist, uh, and they gained in the 1892 election 22 electoral votes, which is highly unusual that a third party will take enough states to get electoral votes in the Electoral College. Thank you very much. We'll just take a sidestep for a moment and then come back to their progress. But <clears throat> Lawrence Goldman, they're part of the world, and the world is changing, and is particularly changing in the production of commodities. Could you briskly take tell us where we fit in with that? Yes. Where the American farmers fit Absolutely. in with that? Absolutely. I mean, this is really, you might say, a first era of globalization. And what's happening is that across the world, markets for raw materials and food and commodities are glutted. And they're glutted because all over the world in the later 19th century, uh, new land is coming into production. Not only in the prairies of North America, but the grasslands of South America, South African veldt, Australasia, Siberia. And there is an enormous 
excess surplus of grain and food materials and raw materials and commodities generally. And inevitably, the price falls. And at the same time, an acceleration of the ease of global communication. Precisely. I mean, you now have the age of steam. You have steamships and railways, and it's possible to move perishable goods much more rapidly uh, around the globe. You can bring uh, grain through the Great Lakes system, down uh, through the Erie Canal, across in steamships to Europe uh, very rapidly. And all of this changes the dynamic. Uh, You're no longer, as it were, in a world of small markets. You're in a global market. Anyone connected with the land, it's not just small dirt farmers in the south or the west. Anyone connected with the land is having trouble in the late 19th century. One of the reasons people are moving across from Europe uh, to America is is because... So we've got that. We've also got a drought. uh, Yes. And and we've also um, got this business of... um, the farmers, the isolated farmers, not being able to get reasonable rates for the transport of their land. I think one of you says it was cheaper to take stuff from Chicago to Liverpool than across two states in the in the United States. Can you just quickly tell us why well, that it, is? Well, it's simply that one of the great concerns they have is monopolistic power. It's a general problem in the Gilded Age, but it's a specific problem for farmers. They depend, if they're going to get their uh, food and, uh, and materials to market, they depend on railroad companies, and the railroad companies have them by the throat and can charge what they like. Just as they complain about banks, they need credit. If you're a farmer, you always need credit. You always have to have things advanced and interest rates are high. It's difficult to get credit. Money is expensive, as it were, in the Because it's a gold standard and they won't... Precisely. I mean, and the, the, the farmers want silver to come into the to play right. because that would give them more ease. After the civil, the, the civil war is fought with the dollar off the gold standard. It, dollars are printed. After the war is over, America goes back on the gold standard, and that contracts the money supply, and that is deflationary. That makes credit expensive, but it also reduces prices and makes life for farmers very difficult. What they want is an expansion of the money supply, and they say, if we back the dollar by silver, and there's lots of silver in Colorado and the Midwest, then we can expand the money supply. That will be inflationary. We'll get more money. So their troubles come in battalions. Uh, Mara, what were the main political goals? Back to what uh, Christopher was talking about. They get going let's say but then what are their main goals well for one they've got the as was pointed out they have senators or this that and the other what are their main goals well for one they want to um increase the availability of money and so they want to go to a bimetallic standard where specie is um both silver and gold and um paper money is backed by both so that it will bring about the inflation but they also want things like fairness in transportation so they want to nationalize the railroads and they want to nationalize the telephones and telegraphs so that um that the big lines, instead of getting rebates for the big um, shippers like Standard Oil, will in fact subsidize the small spur lines, which are not quite as traveled as much, uh, traveled on as much, but the farmers require on to require to get their crops to town. They also um, they also want other things. They want their bank banks and their money in the banks to be safe. So they're constantly concerned about runs on banks and the closures on banks. So they want to nationalize the banking system or somehow be able to bank through the post office. 
um, so that that will hold its money. Or they also want something called the sub-treasury system, which is they put their grain into government silos, have it evaluated, and then they're issued certificates at 80% the rate. And then they can trade those certificates like dollars and then be able to sell it at any moment. And so they're trying to get some sort of economic security that will that is loosened up, um, that is loosening up the availability of money and their access to money. A lot of those ideas must have seemed radical and revolutionary at the time. They're quite commonplace today, aren't they? And they're quite good ideas. But at that time, they were rigidly opposed and fearful, fearsomely opposed uh, by the southern white elite. So can you tell us about that, Christopher? Yes. The Well, the idea of going off the gold standard was to both the orthodox economists of the day and to the wealthy, uh, the great fortunes of the Gilded Age, uh, anathema, because of course, if 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 you're a farmer, you want the dollar to be able to um, purchase more, so that people in the cities who are buying can buy more cloth and more food, and therefore you uh, are able to sell more of your produce. But the that means basically that the fortunes of the rich would. Um, be reduced in value. So um, there was a, 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 a belief that sound money required it to be rooted in metal, especially gold. So the Democrats who control, let's just for the sake of ease here, um, speed really, uh, controlled the South, mm-hmm. largely controlled the South, saw this coming. And at one stage it was 9% of the vote. And, uh, uh, and it, uh, what did they do? Right to kill it, which is what they set out to do. Yeah, the Democrats were terrified of the emergence of populism because populism essentially was taking poor whites and siphoning them out of voting for the Democratic Party, which they'd been able to convince them to do because of the legacy of the Civil War, uh, and into an alliance, in many cases, with poor black farmers. Uh, and that idea of an interracial alliance of working people and poor people and farmers against the southern elite, the Bourbon elite, as they were called, of the New South, was um, uh, 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 frightening. So they essentially pulled every trick in the book. They uh, they ballot stuffed. They ballot uh, stuffed. Yeah, they brought in um, voters who had been dead for twelve years and. We're still on the rolls somehow because obviously the registrar was a Democrat. Uh, they brought in black, poor, desperately poor, illiterate farmhands from the large plantations, um, plied them with whiskey, paid them a dollar each, and counted their votes. Um, there were all sorts of um, uh, machinations. There was violence, outright violence in many cases against populist organizers. And uh, so a number of elections were stolen outright from the populists. Uh, And then eventually the white southern elite, uh, we might might be skipping ahead of the story here, but uh, they, they meet the populist threat by the consolidation of segregation, racial segregation, what we associate with the American South. Yeah, I'll come to that in a moment because it's fascinating. But at this stage, is there a chance that the populist movement is going to embrace black farmers, poor black farmers, as well as poor white farmers. Right. These were poor white southern folk who had been schooled in white supremacy. It was uneven and it was imperfect, but it was extraordinary, given that, 
how much interracial solidarity was forged. For example, I'll give you an example. In, 19, in 1892, in the election for a uh, seat in the House of Representatives in a district in Georgia, Thomas E. Watson, Tom Watson, was the fiery populist candidate, and he was immensely popular, and he'd actually been elected congressman on a Democratic ticket before, so he was a viable People's Party candidate. And the Democrats pulled out all stops against him, but... In one case, there was a black Methodist preacher, uh, and bear in mind the AME church is very big in the black community and was one of the ways the black populist organized was through their churches because you could meet in the church at night and nobody would know your meeting. And a black Methodist preacher who had given more than 60 speeches on behalf of Tom Watson was threatened with lynching. And Tom Watson called in 2,000 armed white populists to defend him from being lynched. Uh, and that was an immense show of solidarity. Uh, and um, Watson, by the way, told white farmers, you are kept apart separately, that you may be separately fleeced of your earnings. In other words, this racist talk is not really about white solidarity. It's about making you the dupe so that you stay poor. Lawrence, but, but it's just worth adding what happens in the rest of Tom Watson's career well, because it is very, very instructive. Yeah. Uh, he is indeed, when he emerges, as probably the, the leading populist advocate in the early 1890s, mm -hmm. an advocate of an interracial uh, coalition mm -hmm. of poor whites and poor blacks. But there's a problem with that, which is many whites won't cross the colour line. Mm -hmm. Many potential supporters of populism see that coalition as threatening to their status and they won't join with blacks in that situation. And, and Watson moves on, therefore, and in the later stages of his career, when he's still a leading populist and indeed a, a presidential candidate, he's notable for his racism. Uh, he turns against the idea of an alliance with blacks because he knows that if you link with the black voter, uh, although by then there are very few black voters, you will lose many white voters as well. Mara wants to get in. Mara? Yeah, but it is not just the whites who are not reaching across the colour line. Blacks also feared reaching across the colour line. They didn't want to lose what little power they had with the Republican Party. And a lot of them also saw the populists were landholders, and they saw them as exploitative as, um, you know, any white landholder. So there, there were, was hesitancy um, on both sides, and there had to be sort of a building of trust. Uh, just one addition here, though, which is agreed with all of that, but I would like to add in a bit about the black populace so that they're not missing from the story, which is that there was a mass movement of black populists. Nobody knows how many. The organizer claimed a million members. That was probably wildly inflated, something like 250,000 of them or something. But this was really a civil rights movement of Aunt La Lettre uh, and, and a kind of post-Reconstruction black freedom movement among the black populists in which they were asking for federal enforcement of civil rights and voting rights. They were asking for an end to the convict lease system, which is where prisoners in jails and prisons were leased out to farms at discount rates and, and it was a way of making black labor worthless. Um, and all sorts of measures that white populist, it wasn't necessarily on the white populist radar, but the Colored Farmers Alliance, which is a parallel to the Farmers Alliance, was raising these sorts of black freedom demands. Now, we get, can you tell us briskly, Lawrence, about a figure called William Jennings Bryan, who was figured very largely for a long time? 
Yes, uh, Brian is probably the most important American uh, statesman that I suppose no one knows anything about and has never heard of. Uh, but he was three times the Democratic presidential candidate in 1896, 1900, um, and also 1908. Um, he uh, emerges uh, as a young man in 1896 uh, at the Democratic Party convention in that year. Uh, and Mara has already uh, referred to the speech he gives, the Cross of Gold speech, uh, which may well be the most famous and influential speech ever given in American political history. This young man, this boy orator, as they called him, speaks before the Democrats. He speaks about the gold standard and the way it, it destroys opportunity for America's farmers. He ends, uh, you know, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Uh, that invocation of Christian rhetoric with secular concerns is very potent. He gets the nomination and he's really the, the spokesperson for the Democratic Party for a generation and he's known as the great commoner because he reaches out to the common people of America or tries to across all these different uh, um, social and economic divides we're talking about um, and and seeks, uh, as it were, for their support. I, he's eventually Secretary of State. He never becomes President and only for a short time. Um, and indeed, at the very end of his life, he's famous uh, because of a, a trial that takes place in Tennessee concerning evolution um, in 1925 at the end of his life. He, he prosecutes a young man who teaches the theory of evolution. He's a strong Presbyterian. But if we go back to 1896, what's very interesting, if we're talking about how the Democrats deal with the populists, is that having nominated Bryan, he becomes, as it were, uh, a, a, a vehicle for pulling populists away from the People's Party because he speaks the language, the language of silver and the language of, 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 of hope for them, uh, and that destroys populism. Mara, what signs were there of racism in this, in this party, in the Populist Party? We've skirted around it. Can you just briefly take, take us to the heart of it? Well, basically, it's a question of white supremacy. Um, and one of the... Race, of course, in the United States is very complex. And one of the things is, if you're poor, are you going to seek alliance with other people who are poor despite their race? Or are you going to sort of gain stature in your own eyes by thinking, well, at least I'm white? So so the racism is there, and there are a number of cases where people cross the color line and get over their racism. And in part, it may have to do with the familiarity that living in an isolated community may um, mean that you know everybody in the community. So they are no longer representing, people are no longer representing a race, either white or black, but rather are representing, you know, Jim and Bob. But there's another aspect of racism with the populism um, that they're quite known with, which is their anti-Semitism. They were quite anti-Semitic in their um, cartoons and their concerns about conspiracy. And, of course, their distrust and dislike of bankers takes the form of the Jewish banker. And they had 
good reason to actually be afraid of bankers because uh, one of the things that happened, they hated Cleveland, who was president at the time. And in 1893, there was a huge crash. It was as bad as you know, there had been one in 1830, which was as bad. And then the, it was the 1893 one. And then there was the 1929 crash. But in the 1893 crash to help get out of it without bringing in silver um, was that Cleveland brokered a deal with J.P. Morgan and with the Rothschilds to borrow $65 million worth of gold. And so the populace looked at that and said, here we have a homegrown solution to bring in silver, but in fact, the power elites are making these deals with these bankers, um, many of whom are Jews, um, and indebting our country to these foreign powers. Um, um, my mind got, Christopher, can they be thought of as progressive in any way, the populists? Oh, I, th- I think they were very progressive. The Mara's point is shared by a number of historians, including Richard Hofstetter, a famous American historian, but there are others who have contested this, and I'm more on the side of those who have contested it and see the populace as very tolerant, actually, and the anti-Semitism as being marginal to their movement. Um, so I'll just lay that on the table. But as far as them being progressive, uh, they were extremely progressive. They uh, are because they're trying to challenge the political system and because in order to get their demands made they have to make inroads into the political system they were very much for a kind of clean government they advocated direct election of US senators which at the time were usually sp- picked by state legislatures uh, who were subject to corruption they wanted direct election of the president uh, it might interest your readers to know that had the populace listeners, uh, listeners sorry <laughs> listeners so, never mind they can do both <laughs> multitasking Uh, had the populist triumphed George W. Bush and Donald Trump wouldn't have been president of the United States because the Omaha platform of 1892 on which the People's Party was launched called for an end to the Electoral College and for the direct election of presidents. Um, In some ways they're more progressive even than our uh, current system in terms of their democratic demands. They wanted a, a political system, a political democracy and an economic democracy. Um, Do you want to pick that up? Well, uh, yes, I mean, I would agree. Um, uh, uh, But I think the debate between, you know, whether they're, if you like, um, hostile nativist racist versus whether they're progressives is uh, uh, maybe slightly uh, beside the point in a way, because they're always both. They they favour state regulation um, uh, and indeed state control. They want to nationalise the railroads. They want to nationalise the banks. And you can understand that. And we might think of that as a kind of left wing policy. on the other hand, they speak these languages, they hate immigrants, they're suspicious of blacks, they discuss anti-Semitism and so forth, and that might seem right-wing. But I think part of the problem here is that we need to understand 19th century America is not quite mapping onto the way we think about left and right. Because actually, at this time, in the late 19th century, it's the Republican Party, the party of, of gold, the party of the bankers and of the industrialists, that has traditionally always favoured the greater level of government intervention. Republicans believe in a government that lays down an infrastructure for economic growth, for example. Christopher? Yes. I, I want to I don't think I can lay to rest, but I want to sort of lodge a principled objection to the idea that the populace were always racist bigots and so forth. Let's look at North Carolina. In North Carolina, 
there's an alliance between the populists and the Republicans that lasts a bit longer than most of the peak of the po People's Party. Uh, and it lasts so long that in 1898, the Democrats had to arrange a coup in Wilmington against the populist Republican alliance, which was very much an interracial alliance, and black Republicans were on board for it. Uh, and there are countless examples of that where the racism is what's coming down on the People's Party from the Democratic Party. The white supremacy is used to disenfranchise black voters, to institute segregation, that whole system that we know from Martin Luther King fighting against it uh, 50, 60 years later, is crystallized at the turn of the century precisely to defeat the People's Party, to strip the black voter of the ability to unite with the white voter. Uh, and and they were tolerant. By the way, they weren't anti-immigrant either. The, there was a study of farmers in South Dakota, and the immigrant farmers, who were mostly Scandinavian, you know, Swedes and Norwegians and so forth, were much more likely to be People's Party members than Republicans. Um, and so many of them were immigrants. Can I just post this over to you, Mara, because what's, what seems to me from the, what the reading I've done for this is that, that the racism is not... There'll be a bit, a bit of racism over it, all right, but he's not coming out of the white fight. It's being imposed by the Democrats by, by preventing uh, the black people from voting, by saying you can only vote if your grandfather voted, knowing damn fine that their grandfather was a slave and couldn't vote and so on and so forth. This was imposed, it was driven in, and it was that which started the segregation, which worked against the principles that had come out of the Civil War, not, it is not the fault of the white, poor white farmers. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I think the um, Democratic elite was very worried, and they started creating white men citizens unions um, that were that were engaged both in controlling the nomination for the Democratic Party, but also um, they were involved in what's known as night riding, which was to actually go out and physically intimidated both intimidate both the populace, um, black and white, um, through the destruction of property and through physical threat. On the other hand, I would also say that while we're talking about all the political um, advances of um, uh, the populace, we should also talk about some of their cultural um, conservatism, that they are willing to reach across the color line and um, they are tolerant of people that they know and like and are like them, but they're deeply suspicious of the city and they're deeply suspicious of the culture of the city. Can we briskly take another side step and talk about the Wizard of Oz? Who wants to wonderfully elliptically sum that up and make it relevant. <laughs> let, let Mara, yes. And then I'll supplement if you miss anything. Yes. Away you go, Mari. You, you've so. got about 25 seconds. Okay. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz is a populist allegory. Um, and uh, Dorothy represents America. The, the, uh, the um, scarecrow represents the farmer. The tin man represents the dispossessed um, the dispossessed workers and um, the cowardly lion is William Jennings, Jennings Bryan, Bryan yeah. who is the great order with a, t a tremendous roar but when push comes to shove you know actually steps away from his principles and gets suckered into um, the Democratic Party and meanwhile um, Oz which stands for ounce and the gold ounce um, 
is um, controlled by the Emerald City, by a humbug. The wizard is a humbug. He is a fake. The man behind the curtain is just a political fixer who's trying to promise everything um, to the people who vote for him. That was very good, but you forgot to mention Dorothy's silver shoes. Yes, and the yellow brick road. One thing at a time, the, the silver shoes. Yes, actually, the, the, the ruby slippers are just because they worked better in technicolor, that, in fact, they were initially silver shoes, um, and that she was able to get where she needed to go with the silver shoes on the yellow brick road. We've got to, you've got to go, the, the decline, can we be brisk now? We've got not enough time left to discuss this properly, but why did it decline and why did it almost disappear from American history books for a while? It declined, I think, because it can't make the necessary alliances. Uh, We've talked about the problem of building a coalition across racial divides in the South. It can't even make uh, links, these poor farmers in the South and the West, with other farmers in the North because their economic conditions are better and there isn't a kind of national farmers' party. Nor can they make alliances with urban workers, because urban workers don't want higher food prices, they want lower food prices. Urban workers don't want free trade, which is what these farmers want. They want protective tariffs to keep uh, manufactured goods from Europe out of the American market. They also face the classic dilemma of the third party in 1896, which is that one of their demands, free coinage of silver, which was a subordinate demand in the core populists' imagination. I mean, they were much more interested in nationalization of the railroads and in the sub-treasury plan that Mara talked about and so forth. But the free coinage of silver is adopted by William Jennings Bryan, who was never a People's Party person. He's a, a silver Democrat. And they face a choice. Do we take one plank, which sort of interests us, but is not really where the action is for most of us, uh, but it's it's about as good as we're going to get from a national party at this point. And it's a surprise because... Bear in mind, Brian winning the Democratic nomination at that point would have been like Bernie Sanders winning last year. Uh, and they they decide to go in with the Democrats, and then he nonetheless loses to William McKinley, a Republican gold standard uh, industrialist-backed um, uh, guardian of the status quo. So they come out with nothing, uh, and their party is forever kind of on the margins after that and never really viable. Yeah. Very brief, I'm afraid, Mara. What's your and- view on this? Quite frankly, the economics improve. The displacionary Mm, spiral stops. There are a couple bad um, uh, um, harvests in Europe so that the demand for American wheat and cotton goes up. And there's the Yukon gold rush. So suddenly there is more species. Mm -hmm. So in general, um, the economy improves, improves, and therefore the populace feel better. Well, thank you all very much. We'll have to come back to the Yellow Brick Road some other time. Uh, thank you, Mark Hare, Christopher Phelps and Lawrence Goldman. Next week, we'll be discussing Alexander Pushkin's masterpiece, Eugene Onegin. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. And I usually start by saying, uh, what did we miss out that we should have had in? It was good, though, because it was multi-perspectival, and actually I think that reflects the field. The field differs over how tolerant they were, Mm -hmm. to what extent they were racist as opposed to their opponents. All that we got on the table, and we shouldn't have had one point of view about it, actually. It was good that we had different points of view, because historians aren't of one mind about it. So 
one thing we missed actually were women that the populace yeah. were really open to women. Yes. And part of this I had to Mary do Lee's with... Mary yeah, Mary Lee's is off. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, it's getting worse. I mean, even yeah. though this is... We've got to control it. You've yeah. said something important, and these two chaps interrupted you. Okay. <laughs> now, can you, can you so, please start again? <laughs> so, um, one of the things we did not include were women, that the populace were very... In, um, women were very involved in the populist party. Indeed, the Omaha platform that we heard so much about, that... Um, um, convention was chaired by Francis Willard, who was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. But there were also other really important women who um, who campaigned for the populace, including Mary Lease, who is known for saying um, you should raise less corn and more hell. Um, that's actually apocryphal, but when asked about it, she said, I think it's a damn good sentiment. <laughs> so, uh, and, and she was for suffrage, and the Kansas yeah. populace for, for suffrage. Bear in mind that this was 20 years before Kansas adopted suffrage yeah. and more than 20 years before the U.S. adopted suffrage. They were standing for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the states which were going for for suffrage and were enacting suffrage were often populist strongholds. Yeah. I, 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 it's not for me to guide you here. You're to, but if you're, if you're <laughs> going to say nothing, there's one question I'd really like to ask. And this thing that was mentioned, that the the segregation was imposed from above uh, and, and, and violently imposed from above, and that began trouble that was not resolved until the 1960s. Is, yeah. there, is there quite a bit in that, or oh, how yeah. much is oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, you're, you're faced with a, an insurgency to the Democratic Party uh, control of the whole South, which emerges after the Civil War in Reconstruction. A Democratic elite has taken control of more or less all the southern states. And there's this threat that comes from poor people. It doesn't matter what colour they are, they might vote you out. So what do you do? One of the things you do is take up an idea which is talked about in the South from the 1870s, which is disenfranchising the blacks. After the Civil War, blacks can actually vote. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they are uh, given the legal right to vote by the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, but violence and, as uh, Christopher has said, all sorts of other uh, corruptions uh, make it very difficult for them to vote. Why don't you, if you're faced with this problem, actually now formalise disenfranchisement? And in 1890, the first state uh, does that, Mississippi, mm -hmm. and then state after state from 1890 to 1908, when Georgia does it, remove the right in various ways of blacks to vote. They can't actually say blacks don't vote, but they can through... Like, was it, did, did your grandfather vote? That's if he didn't right. Vote, you can't Literacy vote. tests, can you, poll can, taxes. Can you read the sheet of paper quickly? That's right, you don't, you exactly. Can't vote. And there are that all sort sorts of, of ways. And so you pass these laws to get round the 14th and 15th amendments to the Constitution, which are designed to try to ensure black suffrage, um, and blacks then can't vote until the 1960s. But Jim Crow goes even further, and that's Jim Crow's the name of the system of segregation that the Southerners are putting in in the 1890s and early 1900. It's actually to try and completely separate poor whites and blacks. So um, streetcars being separated, railroads being separated, saloons being separated, um, so that you cannot, that people will not have a chance to get together to talk and to see their commonalities. So it is both um, about voting, but it's also about sociability to prevent any kind of alliances and fellow feeling. Exactly. If you stigmatize 
uh, African Americans and make them subhuman. In fact, menacing and dangerous. White womanhood's virtue is threatened by them, and so forth. Then to associate with them uh, in a common cause is to not just uh, be in rebellion against the elite; it's to actually mm. violate uh, good sense and custom. Mm. Throughout Southern history, um, race is used to trump class, and this is another famous example mm. where you emphasize racial divisions mm. in order to prevent people with a common uh, unity, a common set of interests coming together on class lines. And unfortunately, it works. Um, it, it nearly doesn't, and that's why the populists are so interesting and exciting. But it does, in the end, <coughs> undermine them. <coughs> Why did it disappear so much? I had to rush that at the end, but uh, it was written about very little, and it's taught in not taught at universities, is it? Well, I, it? yeah, people give a lecture. I I used to give the <laughs> lecture on it. Um, I, I suppose you know you can only sustain this kind of ad hoc coalition with all the problems that it faces for a short period of time, and all those uh, issues that Mara drew to our attention at the end undermine it. Uh, it even starts to rain in the West, and the yes. drought ends, <laughs> and so far get better harvests and they forget about it. I think the important point to draw out <coughs> is that these problems don't go away. The, uh, rural America continues to be in great poverty all the way through to the 1930s when it once more becomes a huge national and international And we have grapes of wrath. Grapes of wrath, we, exactly. We should have got to rather than Wizard of Oz, in my opinion, Perhaps. but I was overruled. Yes, <laughs> I, I mentioned that one, but um, I, I think that, you know, and, and in the 1930s, hundreds of thousands of rural families have to leave the land. Uh, so this is a continuing problem and it's not as if uh, you know in some ways it goes away. I think also even though as an independent party they disappear and even though farmers movements never are as coherent as they were in the 1890s you do see a legacy of the People's Party in various reforms that were enacted over the next 50-60 years including um, well direct election of senators happened uh, the Federal, the Federal Reserve System could be, in 1913, could be seen as essentially the system adopting a formerly radical idea, which is that you should have a flexible, adjustable currency that's geared to the needs of the whole economy, that's not just um, um, fixed automatically by the price of yeah. uh, by by the supply of a metal and railroads are also regulated railroads as well regulated. Yeah, exactly at the end of the first world war so you know in in a sense the populist program passes on to succeeding movements of reform, notably what's known as the progressives and progressivism, who are based in the cities, mm. but who take many of these ideas and run with them uh, to regulate the economy better in mm. the interests of the people. I think we're about to be interrupted with an offer we can't refuse. And the offer is tea or coffee. And <laughs> thanks. Tea, tea would be sweet. Thank you. There are many more history and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.